I'm Danielle Houston at Propel Insurance, and today I asked Zach Snyder, who has done a lot of work with me on The Checkup, which is my podcast, to bring content, especially as it relates to legislative issues and things that are happening in Olympia, things that are happening at the federal level. I asked him if he could talk to us about the Families First Act and the pieces that are really specific here to employee benefits. And so he's he's with me today. Um, the last month or so has been fraught with a lot of change and anxiety and problems we haven't faced before. And since Washington is where so much of this started, I feel like we're also at the front end of where a lot of these other things are starting to happen or started to happen a week and a half ago. Things like restaurant layoffs and COVID testing and state mandates for that testing. Um, last Wednesday, when President Trump signed the Family First Act, it does offer some relief. Um, and it does mandate a few things that are going to directly impact you as the employer. Zach is the Government Affairs Director for Cambia. He is my regular guest on the checkup, and he really is an expert. Yep, yep great I mean, really does a great job breaking down um, what these things mean for us. So I will let him um, speak to his part of the conversation today and what his intent is to is to do and you know what he can and can't answer i would encourage you guys as you have questions you can submit them through group chat oh zach um thank you for joining zach does not have video access today so you are going to hear his voice and um zach how about you introduce yourself for folks that are joining with us today hey danielle hey i'm here <laughs> can you hear me i can i can we are all getting used to our new reality of using teleconferencing software. So thanks for bearing with me uh, at the moment. So Daniel, as you said, uh, I am the Government Affairs Director for Regents Blue Shield. I spend most of my time at our state capitol in Olympia working on health policy, but I also work with our delegation in Washington, D.C. on issues that impact employee benefits and health coverage. So what I want to do today is talk with you about what's going on very quickly in Olympia related to the response to COVID-19 and the legislation that Congress recently passed, the Families First Act. So how does that sound? Sounds like exactly what we need to hear. Um, why don't you tell folks that the pieces that we talked about before, you're not an employment attorney. So what does that mean for our conversation today? Yeah, so that is a good piece of information to share. I am not an employment attorney. I am an attorney but I am a legislative advocate and a lobbyist for Cambia Health Solutions. So that means that I work on legislation as it's proposed. And what your listeners, the employers, what they care about is how is this thing implemented? So we may not likely have information um, about implementation issues. That would be more for an employment attorney, but we will have lots to share about what is in these legislative packages and how it intends to impact businesses and individuals as they struggle to cope with uh, COVID-19 and what it's doing to everyone in our community. Yeah. So you've been in Olympia the last few weeks, um, actually really since January since the session started. So how are you? Well, I am doing okay. I thought that I would be able to take a vacation after the legislative session ended, but I had to cancel that. 
um, yes. because of COVID-19 and not just because uh, everything shut down, but because my company needed me. Um, there's lots going on in Olympia right now. And if you have been reading the headlines, you will know that officials in Olympia are taking the response to COVID-19 very seriously. And as a health carrier, we've been paying close attention to the new requirements that impact health coverage. Um, you know, the governor issued an emergency proclamation on February 29th, one of the first in the country, directing state agencies to use any resource necessary to respond to this outbreak. And following that, Insurance Commissioner Mike Kreidler issued an emergency order on March 5th which required health carriers to cover COVID-19 testing without any cost sharing. So that was the first shot across the bow. Right, and we should clarify, you know, that, that impacted Washington programs and fully insured plans. It left out self-funded plans, but, you know, as we talk about families first, we're gonna obviously address that too. That is correct, Danielle. That emergency order only related to the fully insured plans, and only mm -hmm. Congress has the authority to put regulations on the self-insured plans. Another thing that we saw at the state level is on March 10th, the Health Benefit Exchange issued a special enrollment period to allow uninsured individuals to sign up for health coverage. Uh, Washington was one of the first states to move forward with the special enrollment period. Uh, the federal government is also looking at that as well. Good to know. Um, we know, and, and we should probably include this note, that the things that we're talking about today, obviously there's a lot changing, and you have an expectation, as do I, that our governor will probably do a couple of more things related to this, as well as uh, the insurance commissioner, Mike Kreidler, and it, and it could impact a few different things, whether it's grace periods on premiums or other eligibility. Um, what do you think, you think the Governor Inslee is going to issue another emergency order? Can you speak to that? I think he will. I don't know the exact pieces that will go into it, but I can speak mm -hmm. to a few. Uh, number one, I do believe we will see language relating to coverage of telehealth services. You're hearing that providers want increased pay for delivering telehealth services, so there may be a requirement that health carriers and payers pay parity uh, for the in-person services uh, for those telehealth services. So that's one. Mm -hmm. And number two, I, as you said, Danielle, can see either the insurance commissioner or the governor coming forward with a grace period uh, emergency order, which would uh, require carriers to honor, uh, you know, a 60-day grace period, 90-day grace period uh, for small employers and for individuals on those uh, fully insured plans, excuse me, on the, yes, on the fully insured plans those are the plans that the state can regulate. Remember, only Congress can regulate the self-insured plans. Right. Okay, so let's first talk about the COVID screening requirement in families first. Washington, like you said, mandated that early on, really pretty much right away. Now that the federal government has, now what? Well, now it applies across the board. So, mm -hmm. uh, so, so here's the requirement. Carriers are not 
permitted to apply cost sharing uh, or deductible to COVID screening. And that's a big deal because that's going to help a lot of people. One of the issues that we are seeing pop up is the cost of these tests, right? We want to make sure people are covered. We want to make sure that they get their tests, but we're seeing a wide variation in, in the cost of these tests. The CMS, they stated that they're paying about $51 for the tests. So that's, uh, you know, Medicaid and Medicare, that's how much they're paying, it's $51. So we're seeing, you know, tests $200, $250, you know, over $500. So I think that might be an issue in the, in, in the coming days and weeks is what's a reasonable price to pay? And, and we've heard some reports of tests being charged at, at about $2,000 per test. That's on the really high side. But um, I think we can maybe all hope and maybe drop a, a line to the, our representatives at the state and federal level to ask them to do something about maybe capping the cost of the test, if that's, if that's a possibility. I think that's smart to do. I sent messages to our insurance commissioner, Mike Kreidler, about this issue, and to his credit, he did send out a message uh, saying that he does not support uh, high prices for testing. And uh, I really encourage that sort of communication coming from our public officials right now because we want people to be covered, but if it is at any price, then all of our healthcare costs will go up the next year. So we, we need to pay attention to that and make sure that uh, we are paying reasonable prices. Right. Steward well what we have. Um, okay, so let's move into the emergency family and medical leave because that one, of course, uh, I, well, since since Thursday, I think these two are the two that I'm getting the most questions about for sure. So let's first talk about that family medical leave. Sure, let's talk about that. So. We're talking right now about the Families First Act, and this is the second piece of legislation that Congress has passed to address the COVID-19 outbreak. They did pass an initial bill, an $8.3 billion emergency funding bill on March 6th, that included funding for public health at both the federal and local level. This is the second package that we're talking about. That passed on March 18th, so just a few days ago. And we do expect yet another package to be passed uh, in the coming days. Although over the weekend, that third package uh, failed to become enacted in the Senate. So legislators are back at the drawing board today trying to figure out what they can come up with. So let's go back to the Families First Act that passed on March 18th and talk about the emergency family and medical leave provisions that is, that is in that legislation. So first, it provides up to 12 weeks of job protective leave to individuals who are unable to work on site or remotely due to the need to care for a child under 18 if the child's school has been closed or the child's care provider is unavailable. And I will note that this is limited to individuals who work for employers with fewer than 500 employees. Okay. So that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is that it allows an initial 10 days of leave to be unpaid, but requires the employer to provide paid leave for each day after the employee takes the initial 10 days. Okay. So obviously the way this was written, um, our government expects a larger employer to 
kind of already be doing these things and they're pushing down those requirements to the to the under the smaller business. Um, one of the common questions that I'm getting is if you're under 50, it looked like there were some components of this that would apply to a smaller group than what the traditional FMLA has in the past. Have you interpreted that piece for us? So there are some provisions in the legislation that carve out employers that are less than 50 employees. And I can get some of that specific information to you and your listeners later, but I do think it is important to call that out that there is language in there uh, with special requirements for those smaller employers. Yeah, and the things that I read, if you wanted to apply for an exclusion, it would be if you were in a healthcare-related field, that was one of the um, more prominent examples um, of being able to qualify for an exclusion. So um, I'm just looking to see if we're getting any, any questions here from group chat from folks. I don't have anything related to leave yet. Um, so I guess one of the questions though that I did get early on, uh, will an employer have to get the same paperwork for this kind of an emergency FMLA that they are for traditional leave that's not corona related? So because this legislation is so new, we do not yet know how the federal government intends to implement this. Uh, the IRS and the DOL need to, implement it, need to implement it and provide guidance. What I've been hearing is that many small business owners are worried about how to pay for these benefits, uh, especially at a time when all these industries have basically come to a halt. Mm -hmm. So the legislation does provide a tax credit to cover the costs. The credit is applied to the tax the company pays for each employee's Social Security. So that's, you know, a 6.2% tax on employers where they, they pay that on the employee's salary. So there is a tax credit in this legislation that's intended to pay for this. And that okay. is how the federal government intends to pay for it. The, okay. the details of how that all works, the IRS is figuring that out now. We don't know exactly how they intend to implement it. Okay, so lots to come on that over the coming days, and hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, how about emergency paid sick leave? Because this is another one um, that's interesting, and understandably, it it comes in because I read on a Washington Post article yesterday that um, there are about 25% of American workers that don't have any access to sick leave at all. So including this component was important in order to be able to give someone who maybe did need the screening or did need to quarantine some kind of uh, a paycheck replacement. Um, so let's talk about how that emergency sick leave is going to work. Yeah. The emergency paid sick leave provision requires an employer with fewer than 500 employees, so again, we're, we're looking at not the largest companies in the country, to provide an employee with paid sick time if the employee is unable to work on-site or remotely due to the following circumstances. One, the employee is subject to quarantine. Two, healthcare provider advises the employee to self-quarantine. Three, 
the employees experiencing symptoms of COVID-19, four, employees caring for an individual who's quarantined, five, employee is caring for a child because the child's school has been closed or childcare is unavailable, or six, the employee is experiencing other substantially similar conditions. Okay. And I will note that full-time employees are entitled to 80 hours of paid sick time, and part-time employees are entitled to the number of hours that an, that an employee works on average over a two-week period. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I can already share with the group that's listening here, we've had several questions that are related to what if someone is already working from home and they're asking about emergency paid sick leave maybe for taking care of a child that's at home or even around federal leave. If, you know, what if someone has that ability to work from home and they're taking leave to care for someone else? Those are the kinds of questions that we have out to um, employment law attorneys. So with this group and in the checkups that I'm going to send out, the updates, I will include some of those answers as well because those seem to be um, those seem to be the really common questions there. Um, let's see. Okay, one question, Zach, that I think that you can dig into here. Can you repeat? Um, so the first 10 days of this sick leave is unpaid, but then the employer will have to pay for the time off. Um, how long is that supposed to happen? My understanding is that that it caps paid leave at $200 per day and $10,000 total. Okay. Or over that employees, I see some other notes here, full-time employees are entitled to 80 hours of paid sick time, part-time employees um, could have, you know, kind of a prorated, and num entitled to the number of hours the employee workers on average over a two-week period. So a prorated for part-time and not 80 hours for, um, for other folks. So hopefully that answers the question there. Um, so let's talk about a couple of the things that it prohibits. Um, what are some of the things that an employer we know already cannot do with this paid sick leave? The legislation prohibits an employer from requiring an employee to use other paid leave before the employee can use paid sick time. And the above emergency paid sick leave requirements, these expire on December 30th, 2020. So everything that I just talked about that expires December 30th, 2020. Okay. And then am I correct in reading this that if it prohibits the employer from requiring the employee to use other paid leave, that would also apply to Washington paid family leave, that a person could then use the sick time that it would be mandated here and then have their claim filed through Washington paid family leave as well? So we need to wait for guidance, I yeah. believe, from okay. the, um, from LNI, which is the state agency that implements Washington State's paid leave program. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so we have state guidance we need, we have federal guidance we need, and we have 
uh, guidance, you know, that we need for our employers as well. So this is all, you know, Danielle, you talked about an overused term, unprecedented. And it is a cliche at this point, but uh, we are moving very fast. The government's moving faster than I remember it ever moving uh, on some of these issues. So we are waiting for that. And once we have that, employers will know exactly how to implement this. Yeah. Well, and there's a couple of things here, too, that I want to call out because some of these requirements or the qualifications for someone to take this emergency sick leave are things like um, if the employee is in quarantine, um, if they've been advised to self-quarantine, this would mean that those people don't necessarily have a diagnosis of positive. They've just been told to act like they're positive. And one thing that Washington State did confirm, especially around Washington paid family leave, is that someone does not have a claim for a short-term disability through paid family leave until they have a diagnosis. So many of the things that we are talking about here that it would cover, like the isolation period, would not qualify as a paid disability, whether you still have a short-term disability carrier in place privately and or you have Washington State paid family leave. So that might answer a couple of the questions here that, um, that I'm seeing pop up. That's a great point, Danielle. We, we don't know how the federal government intends for employees to verify that they meet this requirement. So you mm -hmm. say that my child's school is closed. Well, we all know that all the schools are closed right now, but how, how do you prove that in order to avail yourself of these benefits? We don't know the answer to that yet. Right. We don't, we don't know, but we do know, at least from some of the intent and what we have seen lawmakers state, is that they want to make access to these benefits as easy as they can and to not bog down a doctor's office for a lot of requests for, you know, notes and filling out paperwork and things like that when they are likely going to be much more busy taking care of patients, uh, whether it's COVID-related or, you know, the things that people are still coming into the office sick for. Um, so there will be a few things that we'll be watching with the Department of Labor and the other agencies this, um, this week, where I'm sure we'll see a lot happen to the rest of this week. Um, so, Zach, when we talk about um, paid family leave and, you know, some of the things that uh, employers are going to be concerned about paying for, it's a legitimate, obviously a legitimate concern, especially when, you know, businesses are slowing down or they're starting to lay people off or maybe they're a little further along in that layoff process even. Um, what does the bill allow for with some help for that? Well, like I said, the legislation does provide a tax credit. Mm -hmm. And again, we're not going to know exactly how this operates right now, but there is a tax credit available in the legislation that's intended to pay for these benefits. Okay. So for much of the things that uh, employers may spend out for, um, there won't probably be much of a relief or a, a payback of, of kind until we get into next year filing for income tax returns or 
possibly this year since they pushed back the extension? What do you think? It's hard to say at this point in time. We are waiting for the IRS to come out with their um, implementation guidance and or regulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'm kicking back here through um, some of the questions. And there is a question about HIPAA disclosure. And that this probably isn't one that you can answer, but um, we have had this question come up. You know, aren't there HIPAA disclosure issues about asking about their health situation and can you require a doctor's note? Um, we'll get to the requiring a doctor's note, but we have learned through some of this because of the nature of the reason why people are ill and taking time off that um, asking if, if they have been tested or um, if they've tested positive helps you to obviously manage your, your workforce and to know what steps you need to take in your, in your office, that we've actually gotten some guidance that we can ask those questions, but you can't ask about other family members being ill, um, and some of it does depend on what their job role is and their interaction with other people at work. Um, but we'll, I'll send out a, another follow-up to this to the folks who have attended and are seeing these questions, and we'll get some answers um, that are a little more a little more targeted, especially around doctors' notes. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I would add to that, Danielle. Is that I would hope that any guidance that comes out from the IRS or any other agency to implement this legislation would be consistent with HIPAA. We have FMLA that's been on the books for years, and there are similar requirements in there. And um, we have experience with um, the interaction between the employee and the employer being HIPAA compliant. So I would hope that we would follow best practices in that realm. Yes, yeah. Um, there is a question, too, which, again, this is probably going to come with some clarification, hopefully this week. If employees receive their Washington paid sick time that they've accrued, and then they have two weeks of emergency sick leave, potentially, and then the paid family leave, um, to be determined on that. But some of what I read around this emergency sick leave is that it cannot be tied to something else. So when I read language like that, it definitely implies that someone would be able to take time that they've already accrued plus the two weeks um, if they meet some of those qualifications for the emergency sick leave. Um, but again, I think more to come, and it will be very interesting to see how Washington State responds to that since we are a state that has so many mandated benefits already like sick time and um, paid family leave. Um, there's a question about employers getting reimbursed for paid sick leave. And uh, from what I've read, there's not necessarily a reimbursement, but the tax credit could help. Um, is that how you also would read that, Zach? Yeah, I, when I read the legislation and I talk to the you know the congress people that pass this legislation they tell me that the, that it's supposed to interact in in the way that employers are supposed to be repaid through this tax credit 
I don't know exactly how that's going to happen. The devil's in the details. But that's what the legislation says, and we will see how it's implemented. Okay. Well, someone threw a note out here who's already been on the IRS website and says there's some verbiage on the website that you can get a credit on your 941 when you file it. So, again, I mean, some of this is changing by the hour, and um, certainly some of those websites and um, tracking along with IRS changes will be a great way to stay on top of information here, and and we can summarize and, and kind of pull those things together in one resource as well. Um, another question, and I'm not really sure if, if we'll be able to tackle this one here. It's, it's a good question. Um, what if your company changes from 500 employees down to, say, 150 employees related to laying folks off? Um, does your employer then have to meet these qualifications for Families First, and at least in the areas where they would be excluded? Um, and if there's a waiting period that the company would qualify. We might have to talk about this one um, offline. I'll, I'll reach out to you. I see who's, who's asking the question. Um, I would imagine that ultimately, if someone who is over 500 employees now uh, is going to um, go ahead and give their people more sick emergency sick leave or they're going to um, allow for some paid time off, that's the expectation from the federal government, that the larger companies are already going to be doing that. Um, if you are going to shrink in size, then um, I'm not sure how quickly those requirements would then pass on to you, but, um, but we'll ask some questions. Do you have any thoughts on that, Zach? I, I do not. Uh, again, it's going to be an implementation issue about when – at what point in time does the 500 apply? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, when does that count start? Yeah. Does that start, does that start uh, March 13th or does that start, you know, today? Right. Or April 4th when this is technically then all in place. Um, Zach, are these new initiatives going to apply to religious organizations? Well, yeah. It depends. Uh, so if you are, you know, if you are an employer and you are, um, you know, filing with the federal government, then this will apply to you. Now, we know that religious organizations, they don't pay, you know, income taxes and things like that. But uh, this does apply to nonprofit organizations. Now, I know that not, like I said, I'm not an employment lawyer. I know that religious organizations have special requirements over and on top of your typical not-for-profit organization. So I would definitely check in with an employment attorney on those specific questions. Okay. So these are questions to anything that um, we really can't answer now that we know needs to go to employment attorney. Like I said earlier, we are compiling all of those and I will happily um, send those to everybody who's here today and um, and make them available and some updates this week as well. Um, I think that looks like, well, those are the questions that we can for sure answer or address now. And if you have more questions, 
when we have wrapped up here, please feel free. I mean, I, I will be really honest that emails and the phone calls is taking me a little bit of time to respond um, along, along with you guys, as I'm sure you would imagine. Everyone is asking a lot of these questions. So we are getting through them, and um, I promise that we will answer your questions and as timely and as quick as we can. We understand the urgency and the importance of, of all of this to you. Um, Zach, is there anything else that you wanted to wrap and say? Nothing else right now. I uh, just want to thank you and your listeners for signing on today. And uh, I, there's a lot more to come. Pay attention to the third package that's going to be coming down the line that will possibly include a stimulus package to certain American companies and maybe directly to individuals themselves for this. Uh, we will continue to see the state response to this with new executive orders, uh, maybe even new legislation. The, the state legislature is not scheduled to come back until January, but who knows if things continue to move down a certain path, they may want to come back earlier. And at that point in time, Danielle, I'm sure you and I will be um, having conversations about what that means for benefits and for healthcare in the state of Washington. Yes, for sure. Um, a lot, a lot will continue to change. We will uh, keep on swimming through all of it here and um, we're here with you. Uh, we feel the struggle with all of you too. And I, I want to be sure that's, that's communicated. And, um, you know, I guess we, we keep doing our best working in what our new normal kind of looks like and um, here to support you. So if you have more questions, don't hesitate. I'm going to stay on here and compile things that come through electronically. Um, otherwise, you are more than welcome to email me or call me and um, Zach and I can tag team on some of these as well, depending on the kinds of questions you have. Don't underestimate the importance, too, of reaching out to your legislators and your senators to speak to them about what this means for your business. Um, I've, I've gotten some really great responses back from Senator Cantwell's office. They are really appreciative of hearing the real things that are happening here in Washington state that helps them as they are negotiating and talking with others about what their constituents need. So, um, you know, and I know Zach is always willing to help direct some of those too. If you're not really sure where to go or if you want your voice to be heard, um, Zach is, is really, um, it's, it's one of the things he finds most important to help employers find their voice in this healthcare process. So with that, I will I will bid you uh, farewell for this afternoon. Um, again, I'll be on for a while to take some of your questions. Um, my sign-off has become uh, stay calm, stay kind, and uh, we, we can do this, you guys. We'll do it together. <laughs>